Let's, let's jump right in. I'm going to give you some, some, uh, just some overview information. I want to start from the top of your page. Uh, the title of our study this morning is Persevering in the Midst of Suffering. And uh, we're seeing suffering all over the place at this moment. <laughs> we're seeing at the southern border. We're seeing uh, overseas now, and we're seeing Christians being persecuted. And this is actually nothing new. There's, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But there's a comment here by, by Thomas Watson, and he says, Your sufferings are not as great as your sins. A carnal spirit makes more of his suffering and less of his sins. The one says, Never has anyone suffered as I have done. But the other says, Never has anyone sinned as I have done. And that's a matter of perspective, right? So let me give you some things as it comes to overview. And we're talking about the living in... For Christ in difficult times, and I'll just make an announcement. Andrew Brunson is going to be our speaker for our missions conference at CBF, so we want to invite you to be part of that. October 29th is the event uh, from 7 to night, 9 o'clock at night, so you're invited. I think there's going to be a registration for that as well, so you'll be um, aware of that. Um, so here, here's what you need to know. Um, Dr. Hoffitz mentioned this last week, a little, uh, two weeks ago, actually, uh, about the structure. And we'll see, we'll see that same structure pretty much happening today again. Um, when it comes to, to location, and we'll talk about the, the, the background, the historical background, but just geographically, Smyrna was actually 40 miles north of Ephesus. And from all those cities, we know Ephesus a lot more because Paul wrote to that church, right? And there's the relationship between Timothy and, and things like that um, when it comes to the church. So Smyrna is part of that location in the Asia Minor, today Turkey. And archaeologically, if you go online, that's one of the reasons why you have the last page of your notes. There's many notes in there that will tell you what's the geographical location and what's the significance when it comes to the biblical text. Uh, here's just one really interesting uh, picture. This is today, this is the city of uh, Izmir in Turkey. Okay, We're going to see in our notes that when... The, the church in, in Smyrna was, was receiving this letter. They were probably um, around 150 to 200,000 um, uh, habitants in there. So population is about 200,000. Right now, the city of Izmir is about 4.5 million. So it's about the third, fourth largest city in Turkey. And this is just, this, I found this, and this is interesting. This is what they think this, the, the city would actually look like back in the day, just kind of like a remodel, which in one way, it looks better than what it is today, right? So that's why it's a drawing. So I, I don't know what's going on in there, but this is what we see. So let me give you some overview of, of Smyrna really quickly here, just the historical significance. Um, people claim that this was the birthplace of Homer. So they had some elite, elite uh, citizens in there, uh, people that were very well known uh, historically, uh, the city was destroyed in 600 BC, and this is going to be significant as we understand what the context of the, the letter is, especially when it talks about some aspects in relationship to Jesus and what's going on in the, in the setting where they find themselves at that moment. So it was destroyed, but it was also rebuilt by Alexander the Great in 334 BC. So the significance here is that there's the dying and coming back to life aspect, okay? We'll see that in the gospel in a little bit. Uh, Cicero 
who was a Roman writer, he actually says that the city, he calls, he says, the city of our most faithful and most ancient allies in relationship to Rome. So you understand, going back to the picture of our uh, map, why this would be so significant. We talked about Ephesus being here with a, as, as a seaport and a port, port area, but Smyrna had the same relationship in there. And actually, Smyrna is the closest port in relationship to Europe. So you're unifying Asia Minor to Europe, and that's the closest point in reference to both locations. So no wonder why the relationship between those aspects are so important, all right? So second, economically, this is also very significant. It was a very wealthy city. Smyrna, Smyrna was actually vital to trade as it served as a major seaport in the uh, Roman Empire and was connected with a major route to Ephesus. So 40 miles of route that unified those two cities. Population 200,000. And some of its coins, here's another interesting aspect. Dr. Hoffitz mentioned that two weeks ago in relationship to Ephesus, how uh, the minting of coins was so significant in that area and how significant was what was found in the coins as well. But it says some coins identify Smyrna as first of Asia in beauty and size. So you're not talking about a nobody, even though most people know Ephesus, not Smyrna. You're talking about a city who was very uh, well known. Now, you can say that the population of Smyrna had pride because if I was to make a coin with that kind of imagery, that communicates my pride in the way that I see myself, right? And we'll see that in relationship in just a second when we dive to the text, how that applies in relationship to the believers that were found in the city. Now, religiously, there's also some major significance in there. Smyrna was known for, for many temples. Actually, the city was the first one to build a temple to the god or the goddess Roma in 195 BC. All right? Now, when it comes to Christianity, we, we, don't, we don't have any idea exactly when believers planted or established this church. But there is some, some commentators that argue that some of the believers that moved to that area were believers that were part of the Acts chapter 2 movement where Pentecost came down and people come to uh, know the Lord Jesus as, as their Savior. And they moved to their places. And part of that movement that led all the way to Smyrna, people believed to have started in Acts chapter 2. So you see the connection, right? So... Now, let, let's, uh, let's go into the text here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the text verse by verse as we dive into this. And we'll see the, the opening as we get to the structure or the, the meat in here. All right, so verse 8, you can follow along. Um, it says, To the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the following. This is a solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead but came to life. Now, do you remember two weeks ago what Ephesus was supposed to be doing? Like Jesus says, you're supposed to go back to your first love, right? Now, we're going to see in this letter, which is an interesting fact, Christ is not going to tell anything negative about this church, but he's going to say that you need to actually not go back to your past condition, but you need to preserve or persevere through your current condition. Now, you might think, hey, 
I don't want to be under persecution. I want to move away from it. But Christ is saying you need to persevere under your current condition. Now, here's, here's just a fact about the, the text right here in verse 8. The angel of the church, here it refers to both a guardian and a corporate um, identity, identity of the city. It's a reference to a heavenly being. Uh, and it highlights the divine presence and also the protection which is the fact that is described of Christ in chapter 1, which is the foundation for those verses in chapters 2 and 3, right? Chapter 2 and 3. Now, listen to the description here, and this is, this is how the text began to get really interesting. The first description of Christ is that he is the first and the last. Now, this title is actually used of Jesus himself here, and it's used three times in the book of Revelation, one in chapter 1, verse 17, one here in this text, and the other one is actually found in verses or chapter 22, verse 13, okay? This imagery comes all the way from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, and Isaiah chapter 48. So let me read Isaiah 44, 6 for you, and you find the reference on the second page, on the top of the second page in your notes. Isaiah chapter, chapter 44, verse 6 says this, this is what the Lord, Israel, Israel's king says, their protector, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am, and here's what he says, I am the first and the last. There is no God but me. Now, listen to chapter 48, verse 8, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel, whom I summon. I am the one, I am present at the very beginning, at the very end. Now, if you move all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, to chapters 22, verse 13, you, you hear this famous verse that says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end, right? So in one way, it's an Old Testament description with a future implication. All right? I was, I am, and I will be. I have always been present. Second, um, it's a reference, the second reference in the description that we have here is that he who was dead now is alive. Now, remember what I said about Smyrna in 600, completely destroyed, 334 BC, completely built up again? Now, the relationship here is that Jesus also experienced that through his death, burial, and resurrection, right? And so it's interesting, the connotation here, because Smyrna is the, is the letter of the, of the seven churches is the fewest reference to the Old Testament description here. This is the only one that we have. And I think it's so significant because Christ is saying, even though you're going through all the things you're going through and all the persecution you're facing, there is hope because he died but conquered death and came back to life. And now, just as you have been physically destroyed as a city, there is hope for you spiritually even under the persecution you're facing. Now, interestingly, the city's name, and that's halfway through your, your second paragraph right there, the city's name is identical to the Greek word translated for myrrh, which was the spice used in the preparation of, of dead bodies, right? There's many commentary, commentators that will actually argue that most um, that the reason why Smyrna was so popular and so important when it comes to their trades in the seaport was that they imported myrrh from, from the city to other places. And they even argue that Egypt 
was their, their biggest buyer. And that's why the embalmment and everything that happened in there, the mummification process, was pretty much all done with the myrrh that came from Smyrna. Now, an interesting fact about myrrh is that it becomes very fragrant when crushed. Like, I didn't know this, but just think about the aspect of becoming fragrant when you're crushed. As someone said that these believers would have found encouragement that even though the prospect of death threatened them, resurrection and eternal life in Christ were certain. And we have that as well, don't we? For those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, just like Dr. Hoffman just mentioned about Dan Feierstein, we have the prospect of um, being with him and resurrecting. Like this text, this passage, and this aspect of the oppression they were going through reminds me a little bit of Romans chapter 12 when Paul says that we are supposed to live as living sacrifice. Or as the Old Testament would say, a aroma that would be a pleasing offering to the Lord, right? Now, here's the body of our text, Revelation 2, 9 and 10, if you can follow with me in there. Revelation 2, 9 and 10, this is what it says. I know the distress you're suffering in your poverty, but you are rich. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and are really not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of the things that you're about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of, some of you thrown into prison so that you may be tested and you will experience suffering for 10 days. Remain faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown that is life itself. Now, let's look through these things. There, there's a really interesting idea here, which is, which is the primary verb in this passage, in this segment, which is, I know, all right? And what Christ says here is that he knows three things. And here's, here's what I want you to know. When we talk about knowledge in this sense, it's, it's complete knowledge. It's absolute knowledge, okay? That's the indication here. So when it's used of Jesus, it's a reference for his absolute knowledge that he knows all things. And what does he know? That's the question. So there's three things here. Number one, he knows the distress of their sufferings, okay? So he knows exactly what they're going through as a church. Now, distress has a sense of extensive tribulation here rather than just mere affliction. Now, there are some commentators that argue that the affliction here is very similar to what the Roman Empire would do to oppress somebody or one of the punishments that they would actually bring upon a, a person, which would be to tie their hands and feet and to stretch them on the floor, and they would lay heavy uh, blocks on top of their chest with the idea of crushing them to, to death, okay? So the tribulation here is resisting the crushing, but we also know that as myrrh, when it's crushed, it's fragrant. So he says, I know the distress you're going through. And isn't that a comfort to know <laughs> that whatever you're going through and whatever I go through, that he knows? 
So a few weeks ago, my, my wife was in and out of the hospital with COVID, and uh, she's still recovering from it. And I started to read this, the book of Revelation and the seven churches, and I began to realize that it's a really interesting study. If you go home this week and you look through every single church and you look at all the things that Christ knows about them, it just gives you a sense of peace. It doesn't change your circumstances, but it gives you a sense of peace because Christ is describing the idea that he knows everything about you. And so as I pray for my wife to recover, and as I pray for Scott's wife to be able to sleep as we share last time we were here, the peace that God knows my circumstances and my distress is comforting even though the pain's still there. Now, second, he knows their, their poverty, poverty. So he knows their distress due to their suffering, and Christ knows their poverty. Now, this is really interesting because the word for poverty here is not a general debt, but one which denies even the basics of life. All right? Denies even the basics of life. I want to jump to the middle of, of that big paragraph in there where it says the Roman Empire, and I want you to pay attention to, to what it says here. The Roman Empire granted protection and tolerance for those practicing, practicing Judaism. In one way, every time the Roman Empire conquered a place, what they did was they did not mess with the religion of that place because that would cause more problems, right? So they let them worship their own gods. And that was not different for the people who were Jews. If you're, if you're a Jew and they conquer you, you, you can practice as long as you follow our laws, right? So listen to this. So they granted, the Roman Empire granted protection to those practicing Judaism. However, if these Jews, if the Jewish Christians were excommunicated from the synagogue, then they would have no legal protection. Now you think about this. If you're not part of the mafia, the mafia is not protecting you. And the government that's over the mafia is not protecting you. And, and, and nor would be easy for those people to get a job. They don't have the, the support of the government. They don't have the support of their own people. And now they're being excommunicated of, of life. So it says here, in an antagonistic environment, it would be difficult for a Christian to make a living, making many economically destitute. They may also have been the victims of mob violence and looting. And that's why it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says that, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. And such a spiritual wealth in the midst of economic poverty is, is a trait that's not untypical for the church or for believers. This is in contrast to the rich, listen to this, to the rich, godless earth dwellers who are poor in faith, which the church of Laodicea was on the verge of becoming. And we'll look into that in a few weeks. Someone once told me that and I've said this multiple times to the, the teens and the young adults that I've worked with. Someone once told me that sometimes in life we trade what we want the most for what we want in the moment. And I think if I evaluate this church correctly, what they probably wanted physically in the moment was relief 
But what Christ is saying, you do not trade your momentary relief for your eternal, eternal rewards. And that's where the paradoxical status comes, where God's people in the sinful world, they, they're often poor in the terms of the world's wealth, which means physically, but they're spiritually rich because of eternity. Here's the third thing, uh, thing that Christ knows. He knows the slanders. He knows those who are causing insults. And he's fully aware because he has absolute 100% knowledge so that is a comfort. Is a comfort to know that Christ knows my financial situations when it comes to my, my bank account and my needs. It, it is comforting to know that he knows where I am in terms of my suffering and my emotional condition. And he also knows, just like the Old Testament and the psalmist says, that he knows those who are oppressing me through what they say. But the question that comes up with this is, who are the Jews and, and, and why are they from the synagogue of Satan? So I, I have two paragraphs in here. I'm not going to go extensively into this, but Fanning has, and other commentators make a good point. He says, those are real Jews who turn away from and oppose God's saving work through Jesus. Now, that's no surprise, right? They, they oppose Jesus Christ in his ministry. The opposition led him to the cross. Okay, and Christ says in the middle of that process, he says, you will face many trials and tribulations. And if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. So it is no wonder that this church is going through what Christ has already promised them. Because there will be persecution. So he's not talking about or questioning their ethnic background. He's not talking about their bloodline. He's not talking about their heritage. He's talking about their spiritual obedience to God. Consequently, the answer that comes from this is pretty easy, right? Christ calls them a synagogue of Satan, which is linked to their abandonment of God, as well as their persecution, oppression, and mistreatment of the Christian in Smyrna. Now, next time that somebody does something to you or maybe gives you the finger as you're driving, not a thumbs up, or he says something mean to you on Facebook or whatever that may be, you need to remember that God knows all those things. I would challenge you to think, as I've challenged myself to think, that God even knows what they're thinking, right? <laughs> so this is what he's offering, and now he's going to offer encouragement. Look, at, look with me in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, Do not be afraid of the things that you're about to suffer. All right, so he's going to promise... He's going to offer two things here. Number one, the encouragement to the church is going to be in the first exhortation. He says, do not be afraid. Uh, stop being afraid. There are some people who have argued that there's 365 appearances of the phrase, do not be afraid or do not fear. There's no wonder why that God said that to Moses. And then Moses later on passed that to Joshua. And throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible is full of do not be afraid. Actually, when I went to Cedarville, I, I walked around campus quoting Joshua 1, 9, 1, 8 and 9 because I was, I was afraid. I didn't want to be there sometimes. But it says, have I not commended you? I know it's for Joshua. But the principle still applies, right? 
Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for I am with you wherever you go. Is that true in good times? Yes. Is that true in bad times? Yes. Will that be true tomorrow when we celebrate Dan's life, but most importantly, we celebrate his appearance before the Lord? Now, here's the encouragement. So he, he, he commands them to stop being afraid, and this is something very visible throughout Scriptures. Secondly, the Lord knows the future plans of Satan, which is right now, according to the Scripture, which is plans that include actions that are imminent and unavoidable. And in the process of knowing the plans of Satan, he says to them the second exhortation, which is be faithful or remain faithful, okay? In the midst of this passage right here, do not be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. So you are about to suffer some things. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so that you may be tested, Okay, so here's a reference for testing, which reminds us of James chapter 1. Okay, in James chapter 1, very famous passage. But, but here's, here's, the, here's the key. It is Satan's purpose to tempt you, okay, so that you may, as Eugene talked to me a few, few months ago, to apostatize, to leave God behind the picture. But it's not God's purpose for you to be tempted, but to be tested so that he may confirm the authenticity of your faith. And I want to say this. I want to go a step further here. I want to say that you cannot have an authentic faith, faith without being tested and remaining faithful. You know, I go through that in my household. I have two, two uh, little girls, and, and right now I feel like they go through like growth spurts at the same time. And, and in those moments, obedience is something that is lacking. Like they're, they're not, let's say, faithful to obey. But it is in those moments that he's saying you need to stop being afraid so you can actually remain faithful. It is no wonder that when people say in the fire department and police department will say the same thing, in the moments where you're afraid, you need to take a deep breath and that will lower your heart rate by 10 beats per minute. One deep breath. And what he's saying here is you need to, to remain faithful. Now, look with me at the description of 10 days here, which is really interesting. The term could suggest a limited amount of time, like 10 days. Just like Daniel chapter 1, when, he's, when he says, I don't want to eat the food, I'll, I'll eat something else for 10 days, okay? It could be that. But the round number here denotes fullness or completeness. However, there is no reason to take the number symbolically here, I don't think at least. As indicated by Thomas, such limited periods of persecution are well known in biblical history. It could be 10 days. It could be 10 seconds. Here's what they need to know. God knows. So do not be afraid and remain faithful. And once again, the call to remain faithful is extremely important because it's connected to the faithful one. 
You can't have faith without the one who is faithful. And I find it interesting that in the midst of this, he gives us a promise. <laughs> now, I remember a few years back, uh, I came back from, from Brazil and I got back to the States and it was during the time where the government had a program called, I think, and you, you, please forgive me if that's not the, the right word, clunker. You could take your clunker to the dealership and they would give you an amount of money, right? Um, well, I didn't even have a clunker to make the trade because I was driving my father-in-law's van. But I find it interesting that that in the physical world, there's benefits to some of the things that we do. There's incentives. But it's nothing like this. I'm watching you right now. I'm saying none of you are worthy of receiving a crown. And you are probably watching me and thinking, who is that guy to talk about a crown? But in the midst of their tribulation, Christ gives them hope. And so the crown here is um, the usage of this word uh, is a metaphor. It has a couple of possible associations, okay? While the promise of a crown is used frequently in the New Testament relating to the eternal reward of the faithful, the crown was a familiar metaphor in Smyrna. Why is that? And do you guys remember the idea of the coins that I mentioned to you earlier? Because in some of the coins, they even place the idea of receiving a crown or a person with this crown in there. So the reference to a crown here, however, could refer to a common practice also of the Roman Empire. As I did some studies, the Roman Empire has a, had a multitude of crowns that they gave away. They had crowns for, 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 for babies who were born, a certain celebratory crown. They had a soldier's crown, which is the, the, the civilian corona, which they call but so there's there's a vast majority a vast vast options here uh, that could make a make a reference to what this actually means. But a Roman city would award a crown to the to one of her leading uh, citizens posthumously. And this idea here kind of refers back to Second Timothy chapter four, where Paul says, "Finally, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me." Now listen. Did you, did you notice that Paul did not say that the crown of righteousness was achieved by me? It was reserved, which means it's a, it's a passive action from Paul's side, but it's an active action from God's perspective. Now, here's the conclusion, verse 11. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. Now, with the deliverance of the truth, God's people are required to respond, right? They're presented with truth. Now they have to respond to it. And that's based on Mark chapter 4. I'm not going to read the verse for you. But one scholar argues that this call to hear is a direct development of Isaiah. Once again, Isaiah chapter 6. And it's intended both to enlighten genuine believers and to blind unbelievers. Now, the one who conquers, Dr. Hoffert's made a little mention of this. This is actually a word that's used, or a, a terminology that's used 15 times in the book of Revelations, 26 times in the, in the New Testament. And it's an athletic and military, um, 
metaphor that indicates superiority in the ability and skill to overtake one's opponent. So we're studying at Sunday school class for our young adults, we're studying the life of Joseph. And this week I've been able to study the life of Jacob. And it's really interesting in Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob meets this man, they're fighting and wrestling all night. And all of a sudden it's about to be morning and the guy just touches his hip socket. It feels like me playing with my kids. But that's the idea of the one who conquers. He's powerful. Secondly, it says no way you will be harmed by a second death. So we know that those who remain faithful will never be experiencing this, right? Remember the thief on the cross? says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, second death here is the destiny of those who rejected Christ as their Savior. And this is an allusion to the oppression that the Smyrnians were facing based on the Jews who were oppressing them. You're saying you rejected the message. Your destiny is to be harmed by fire. And this is the idea of the lake of fire from Revelation chapter 19 and 20. So the assurance here is that in the Greek, when it says in no way will be harmed, is, is the strongest possible negation, which pretty much means in no, no, no way you'll be harmed. And that's the assurance and that's the promise. Now, let's go to the intersect here. You have some things we can read. I'm not going to read the verses. You can meditate on those. But suffering for Christ is not a sign of weakness, but rather it is a privilege. It is no wonder that the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Second, the Lord is completely aware because he has absolute knowledge of all that we will encounter. No one, not even Satan, can actually act without the Lord's knowledge. And you have First Peter in here, but this also comes to mind. Do you remember the life of Joseph? Nobody can touch him unless God allows those things to happen. And thirdly, the Lord promised to be present with us through the suffering and then invites us into his presence after successfully enduring it. So here's, here's my challenge for you as we close here. Remain faithful. Remain faithful. We have the greatest God who has saved us through Jesus Christ and he is the greatest example we can follow, right? So Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that you know all things, but you know the distress we face, just like you knew the distress of the church of Smyrna. You know our poverty, and I, I'm, I'm assuming here that none of us are actually struggling financially to the point of not having our basic uh, needs being met. But Father, I know that we struggle spiritually. And so above everything else, Father, would you make us wealthy spiritually before you? And thirdly, Father, would you help us to remain faithful, just like the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, that, six, that we might stand firm. So Lord, I pray for every man here that they would be a blessing and not a curse, that they would bless their families, their children, their grandchildren, their church, 
friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I praise you for giving me the opportunity to open this text and to learn from you. Thank you so much for loving us and caring for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.